0: Would you take God's word and turn to Matthew chapter 6? For those that are visiting, we began a series last week talking about investments. And the key thought last week was that God owns it all. And so we looked at how we are stewards versus owners, that everything is God's, that we live a life of gifts rather than entitlements. And when you think about investment, you talk about life here, but also eternal, versus this whole obsession we have about rights. I have this right. This morning, we look at the law of first things. Now, there's laws that we live, that we operate by. Take the law of gravity. You don't have to invoke it. You don't have to think about it. If you step off a cliff, what happens? gravity comes into effects. There are consequences, painful ones if the cliff's real high. And there's a reason for gravity. It keeps us from free-floating off into space. And if we understand the law, we can even have fun with it, trying to defy gravity. Where's Dale Dershow at? He's somewhere. There he is. You know, I... I watched how he likes to defy gravity by blowing things up and seeing how high some of those pans would go. I had that privilege yesterday. I do think he missed his calling. I think he should have been a demolition expert watching the joy that that brought to his face. So there's natural laws and they exist for our good. So there's laws of God that exist. And if we choose to ignore, There's consequences. Darkness and light cannot coexist. Scripture says, what you sow, you reap. Scripture talks about, we saw this last week, where you put your treasure, it's a hard principle. That is what you will love. And you'll hate other things. Now, have you noticed today, it's hard to have a good conversation about anything. I mean, opinions rule. And with opinions, there's accusations that shut down what I would call an honest conversation. It's almost like people are saying, I want to believe what I want to believe in spite of the laws. Please don't confuse me with the facts. About a week and a half ago, the governor of Utah, in addressing some of the violence against women on college campuses, in terms of some of the slave trade they deal with in their own states, declared pornography a national, or not a national, but a statewide health crisis, and was based on all the current information they're finding out. I mean, they know now that in brain activity, that sexual addiction and pornography create similar dopamine spikes as crack cocaine and heroin. It's very addictive. So in addressing the violence, which everybody wanted him to address, he declares a national health crisis in terms of pornography. And what happens? Well, there's an uproar. They cry foul. No, no, no. That's freedom of speech. Again, please don't confuse me with the facts. He's trying to deal with the root causes of violence on campus and in his states, but nobody wants to look at one of the critical problems. So these laws of God. Today, people don't want an honest conversation. They just want what they want. But we have to look at the law first things. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to put the scripture on the screen. I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. I want to read these two verses, then look at the context and draw some observations from those. Jesus, at the end of really talking about a lot of things, we're going to see that in a moment, says this. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we really got to ask ourselves three questions. What does it mean to seek first? What does the kingdom of God entail? I mean, how comprehensive is that? And what is God's righteousness? What is he talking about there? So those are three questions we should at least have foremost in our minds In terms of seeking the first things. And all these things, things he just talked about, will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious. And he addressed this issue about worry. The word anxious here means to strangle. And we know that worry strangles hope and life and perspective out of people, doesn't it? Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, the context we began looking at last week goes back to Matthew 6, verse 19, where Jesus says, Do not lay for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. And of course, he goes on to say then that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And later on, he says, you can't serve two masters. You either will hate the one or love the other. You'll be devoted to the one. And despise the other, you cannot serve God and money. So he addresses the problem where there's times that we raise up idols in our lives and we have a tendency to trust in stuff rather than him. And the stuff becomes our focus. Now, he flips the coin around and says this. In verse 25 of chapter 6, he just talked to the people that have stuff. Now he's going to talk to people who don't have stuff. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. Don't let this strangle you about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or what you will put on. So he's talking about basic necessities of life. The focus here is on food, water, and clothing. So when you start talking about seeking God first, he contrasts this with do not be anxious. And he tells us in this passage there are four reasons why worry or or being anxious is wrong or it's a sin. Again, before he focused on the wealthy, temptation to trust, in our provisions. Here the temptation is to doubt God's provision. Do you see the contrast? So the four reasons, he first says, listen, if you're anxious instead of seeking first, instead of trusting God, that makes you unfaithful. He says, look at the value God puts on birds, and your value is far greater than those birds. So if you are anxious about stuff, About basic necessities, it's a failure. You're unfaithful in seeing how God views your value. In other words, you don't think you're all that important. And God says you are. Second reason is that it's unreasonable. He says, look at the flowers of the field. Look at how they're adorned. And then he talks about Solomon, who was the wealthiest and wisest person to have existed in their time, at least history-wise. And he goes, Solomon could never dress up as beautiful as you see trees and flowers and all those kinds of things. Third, he says it's unnecessary. He says, by worrying, can you add a single hour to your life? And the answer is no. In fact, if you worry, you'll probably take some hours away. And finally, he said, it's unwise. He says, don't get caught up in asking what to eat, to drink, and to wear. And for most of us this morning, when we woke up and we decided to to come to a worship service, we worried about what we were going to wear, and we have a closet full of clothes to choose from. Contrast that with one time I was in Zimbabwe, and we were taking a pastor and his wife back out into the bush. It was about 80 kilometers out. And when we got out there, I remember a little kid came up to us. And for those that were farmers, remember the old feed sacks? He used to put 100 pounds of feed in. I know they kind of dumbed them down to 50 pounds, but back in the old days, they were 100 pounds. There was a little kid that came out of the bush, and he was wearing one of those feed sacks. Hole cut for his head, two holes cut for his arms. That was his clothes. So seeking first is about two things. It's one, about focus, and two, it's about simplicity. Focus, where do we invest our eyes? Because before these, he said, listen, you know, your eye allows light into your body. And you need a single eye. You need to focus on what really is important. And that brings us to the point of simplicity. It's about God and his kingdom. It's not about all this other kind of stuff that we occupy and accumulate and worry about what's going to happen. So seeking first. It's about focus and simplicity. But what does the kingdom of God entail? My short answer is everything. Everything. It's all of life, present, and future. And I know in our Christian circles, sometimes we have this false duality. We claim that some things are spiritual and other things are non-spiritual. But again, this passage talks about the basic necessities for life. Food, water, clothing. And he deems them as spiritual things. How many times have we sung a song that says, This is my father's world? And then we act like it's ours to do what we want with it. And so often then we assign our faith to some private world. But when we seek first the focus, the simplistic nature is God and his kingdom. What he's really saying is that God is the center of all life and not on some peripheral aspect. And then he talks about his righteousness. So what is God's righteousness? Now, the very beginning part of this message, if you go back to chapter 5, he says that we should hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those words hunger and thirst talk about the basic necessities. And as we hunger for food, as we need food, as we need water, as we need clothing and shelter, so we need his righteousness. It is the basic Aspect of who we are as Christians. And as we illustrated this morning in communion, his righteousness is only found in Christ. We are made righteous by his sacrificial death and his resurrection on the cross. Now let's look at our culture for a moment. And we've been illustrating this whole investment thing because. One of the idols that we have in America is our money. It's our stuff. It drives much of our politics. It drives much of our morality. Now, I save articles that I get down through the years. And back when they still kind of had a paper newspaper, I know they still do, but it's kind of on its way out. Most of us read digital. This article came up in the early 2000s. It was in the Sunday paper. And here's what the title was. The title was Living Large. The subtitle was their houses are big, their cars look expensive, and their debts are huge. Young and successful people live for today. And the first line of the article read this way. The new American dream, buy today and pay tomorrow. And then it went on to talk about the current attitudes of debt load people carry and are comfortable with. And I look at that, and that's at least 15 years old, and I say to myself, nothing's changed. In fact, it's only escalated. And think about as a country how we are so willing to invest in stuff. In fact, we enslave, we are indebted ourselves to that stuff. Listen to our language. We talk about a standard of living. How many times have we heard about a standard of giving? If we're going to invest in the kingdom of God and his righteousness, if we're going to seek first him, if we talk about it is all his and we are stewards, not owners, we should talk about the standard of giving. Now think with me. If I would ask you today and had you write down your answers, what does it mean to have an effective church? What list would you put on that? And we'd create some spiritual sounding lists. We'd say things like, we need a praying church. We need a church that knows its Bible. We need a church that does Jesus stuff. And there's good lists. But I think about the Pharisees. And they were very religious. And they prayed more often than the average person. And they studied to the point where they literally had the Old Testament memorized. And they created a Christian subculture. Much of it was good, but they were ineffective because they killed the very God they claimed they worshiped and prayed for to come. So I had to ask myself, why? And what I realized was that their system was more important than the person how they did things. The fact that they prayed was more important than their relationship, their heart towards God. So they did all this religious stuff. They had it down. They had it memorized. They looked righteous. They acted righteous. But Jesus comes along and says, except your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It was in that same sermon that we're looking at now. You see, they lost their hearts. And they gave it away to idols. And even though they dressed those idols up in religious clothing, they still stole their hearts. They stopped listening to the voice of God. Now, when you look at a comprehensive look at the New Testament, I find it interesting that the Pharisees and Sadducees are always bringing up the subject of money about who should we pay taxes to, about a a lady spending too much on Jesus one day, and, and about tax collectors. You know, those tax collectors, they would never be allowed in one of their houses of worship because they were evil what they did with their money. I'm curious what we talk about. Now, on this list for an effective church, And by the way, I'm not saying that prayer and good doctrine and things are not important, but they have to be put in the context. Like James says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. So the reason we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness is because it adds an effective level to those things that we need to do. But here's something we don't talk about in an effective church. It's found in the parable and business practices. And by the way, in... The New Testament people who had stuff were considered business people because it was really kind of a two-tiered society, those who had and those who didn't. So Jesus comes along and tells this story, and then here's what he says in Luke 16.10. Listen to these words. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. And then he clarifies this. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Very few times in any church that I've done some consulting work, and even churches that I led, that when we talk about what does it mean to have an effective church, do we ever look at the issue of our stuff? And you get the message of this. He says, if you can't handle, if you're dishonest with the stuff I gave you, if you're all wrapped up in anxious and worry, and if you get giving it to idols instead of humbly submitting before God, he says, why would I even bother handing you true wealth? Here's the implication. You can have a lot of prayer and Bible studies and events that draw thousands of people. You can have the best music. But if you can't handle money and assets, why would God ever entrust us with more eternal matters? And we're not talking about the church budget here. And this verse frightens me when I see Barnard's polls on giving and I listen to people talk about their money and I hear attitudes that are not gracious or generous. And when churches are no longer effective, we rarely ask the question, what kind of stewards have we been of the Lord's generosity to us? We introduced a new song this morning, and we showed a little clip of how this song came out of the heart of this couple, and it 's their story. I think we forget that all the songs that we love they flowed out of the generosity of someone who God created and empowered, and they wrote something new for their day and You know they have a responsibility to steward the gift that God gave them. The first thing that's said about God in scripture is in the beginning he created. And so we have artists like this couple creating songs that that tell us about the truth that we are no longer slaves. Think of the truth of that song. We are no longer slaves. We are a child of God. So, seeking first, it's about the pride of living. We sing, God will take care of you, but then we live as if we take care of ourselves. And Scripture says you will get rewards on the kind of investment you make. And today, in our culture, we spend thousands of dollars. We spend tens of thousands of dollars on do-overs, on faces, on homes, on marriages, on jobs, on lives. And people are never satisfied. And addictions run wild. I know for us, when you talk about addictions, we think about alcohol and drugs But there are far many other kind of addictions that steal our heart and enslave us. Let me take another spin about this focus and simplicity. Jesus is always constantly reaffirming what he says. And in Mark 12, let me read the scripture to you. It says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked them. Of all the commandments, what is the most important? And Jesus just narrows it down this way. And he really is saying the same thing. The most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And it's the priority of passion. That's what the priority of seeking is. That's what it means to have first things first. got to put our passion, we got to put our relationships in order, and that's what we fill our hearts with. We fall in love with Jesus. Just imagine being free from worry about stuff, from worry about how much the person next to you makes, from worry about how much the next person to you gives. Imagine being free to simply be generous and not to be critical about someone else and how God has blessed them. Imagine just being so content that you sit at the feet of Jesus and you are so filled with gratitude that you're free from envy or condemnation so often because the idol has taken our hearts, we're envious of what other people have, and we condemn them because if we had that kind of money, we wouldn't spend it that way. That <laughs> just shows our heart, people. We need to learn to live the grace of God, celebrate it. Because at the very end of this, Jesus says, you know, life is hard. <laughs> the, each day has enough trouble of its own, but God is good. Amen. Remember the phrase when I say God is good? What do you say? All the time. I'm going to call the worship team up because we're going to sing this song, um, No Longer Slaves Again, the song we're learning here. As they do that, i want to close with a prayer. It's going to be on the screen, and we're going to pray this together. I think it'll be on the screen. There it is. Let's take away the three ways to get behind it. <laughs> Thank you. I can read it now. Let's pray this together. Dear Lord, I pray that you will give me wisdom to guide me on this faith journey of stewardship. Help me to understand that everything I have is a gift from you. Open my heart and my mind so that I may use these marvelous gifts to give back to you here on earth. I pray, Lord, that you welcome me into your kingdom at the end of my life, and that you are pleased with what I have done with all your gifts. Amen. Let's stand as we worship.